welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series six and episode five, the feeding of the 5,000. This remarkable miracle is recorded in all four gospels. This is unusual. We're going to follow the story as described in Mark, Mark chapter six, verses 30 to 44, but we'll also be referring to the accounts given in Matthew, Luke, and John, which add extra and interesting details. And indeed, John adds another section afterwards, which is a major event and discussion that took place after this miracle. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is a well-known miracle. There were 5,000 men present, the Gospels tell us, but also women and children. So the overall number uh, is unspecified, but could well exceed 10,000 people. That is a huge crowd by any standard. And it is the biggest crowd uh, recorded in Jesus' ministry. So this is a really significant moment. Now in series three, uh, we've, we saw how Jesus' ministry started, the first tour of Galilee. And then in series four, we saw this Sermon on the Mount where the newly formed group of apostles and other disciples were being trained into Christian lifestyle. And in series five, we saw the second tour of Galilee where the apostles were being trained by Jesus as he traveled around. We're now in series six. We've already had a number of episodes in series six. And those episodes have described uh, two crucial events, which are the immediate background to this uh, dramatic miracle that takes place. The first event is the sending out of the 12 in pairs to preach all over Galilee. So Jesus is multiplying his ministry very dramatically. This story is told most fully in Matthew 10, and we looked at that uh, in some detail in earlier episodes in series six. And then secondly, and as a real contrast, the last episode that we have um, looked at was the sudden and unexpected execution uh, and death of John the Baptist. You remember that John the Baptist had been in prison, uh, imprisoned by King Herod Antipas, who ruled Galilee and other areas, uh, and who was the ruler over Jesus uh, in political terms. And quite suddenly, through the influence of his wife and his stepdaughter at a public banquet, uh, he had decided to execute John the Baptist rather than keeping him in prison. He was obviously reluctant to do this, but this event had taken place. We saw the story unfolding in the last episode. Now, the news of this uh, story comes back to Jesus and gets out into the community. And the trigger points for our story today are the coming together of uh, information to Jesus from these two earlier events that had just taken place. First of all, we have the disciples reporting back to Jesus on their ministry. And secondly, we have Jesus hearing about the events to do with John the Baptist. Let's just read a couple of verses to illustrate this. Concerning John the Baptist, Matthew 14 verse 13 reads, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So hearing about John the Baptist triggered Jesus to want to take some time out and pause. In Mark 6 and verse 30, it says the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And this event also happens just at the same time. 
So there are two separate reasons why Jesus wants to take his disciples uh, away from the pressure of the crowds uh, to reflect on growing a ministry, going out in pairs, and also to reflect on the death of John the Baptist. So that is the immediate context to the story that we're now going to look at. But we're now going to read the text in Mark 6 and verse, verses 30 through to 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. So Jesus, first of all, is withdrawing. We discover by reading all the four accounts together that he's going to uh, the region of a, a town called Bethsaida, which is on the north and eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. We can calculate that this is about 10 to 15 kilometres away from where he starts on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. He wants to give his disciples a time to reflect, to get strengthened, and to prepare for what could be a tougher time ahead now that John the Baptist has been executed and opposition is gradually increasing. But when he got to Bethsaida area, the town near where he landed by boat on the northeast side uh, of the lake, there was a huge crowd there already. And the narrative tells us that they had travelled all the way around from the western side. Even before he started, there was a huge crowd, so huge 
that they couldn't find time to eat, as we've already seen. And the crowd saw him getting into the boat and simply decided to walk along the lakeside while the boat was travelling directly across the uh, sea. It's a remarkable event. And the narrative is fascinating. It looks like that the crowd gather on a hillside or a mountainside near Bethsaida. We can see this from John 6 verse 3 and Luke 9 verse 10. And the crowd greets Jesus with great excitement when he arrives. As I've said, it's probably the largest crowd uh, in Jesus' ministry. Certainly the largest recorded number of people in one place at one time. And Jesus' response is to do two things. He has compassion on them. And according to Mark 6, 34, he teaches them according to Matthew 14 verse 14 he also performs miracles of healing verse 14 of Matthew 14 when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd he had compassion on them and healed their sick so the plan to have a time of rest and recuperation uh, is not going forward it's not looking as though it's going to happen quite the opposite the crowd has got there first this now becomes a public event and an immediate issue arises. These people have been walking a long way and they've been traveling and they're now hungry. The day is uh, getting towards the end. And so the issue of eating food becomes rather critical for rather a large number of people. They're fascinated to be close to Jesus. They've traveled a long way and any food that they might have brought with them they would almost certainly have eaten by this time because they've traveled uh, that long distance, 10 to 15 kilometers, I would estimate. And so the issue of eating becomes very critical and the discussion between Jesus and his disciples is a little bit tense because they're very keen to dismiss the crowd. They want some peace quite urgently. They've been quite alarmed to see that the crowd came with them when they went to try and get away from the crowd. And they know that it's not practical either in financial terms or in terms of supply, to get enough food for 5,000 plus, maybe 10,000 people. I mean, it's an absurd concept. They're right there in the countryside. Um, this is not an age of big shops and supermarkets. Where on earth are they going to get uh, large quantities of food and how on earth are they going to pay for it? They have a traveling purse. We know that from John's gospel. There's always some money with them as they're traveling, but certainly not enough money to fulfill this particular need. And so they're really requesting, very understandably, that Jesus dismisses the crowd. But then something very striking happens. And this is an issue that has a real bearing on Christians in, in our own discipleship, because things like this happen to us on a smaller scale very often. Jesus in Mark 6, 37 says, you give them something to eat. Now, they didn't even have their own food. So they had to find out what resources were available. And we discover that the only food they can get their hands on at short notice in response to Jesus' question are five loaves of bread 
and two fish from the lake which have been prepared and they bring these to Jesus. Now this is an impossible situation, a ridiculously small amount of food for a ridiculously large crowd, the largest crowd ever recorded in Jesus' ministry. What on earth is going to happen? And Jesus is teaching his disciples about obedience and faith. And he asked them to do something which was quite striking. He asked them to um, get the crowd, verse 39 of Mark 6, to get the crowd to sit down in groups. Verse 40, they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. So a massive organisation of the people took place with virtually nothing to give them. So the disciples are forced into a situation of extreme vulnerability because the people would be saying to them, well, why are we sitting down? What are you doing? Well, Jesus is going to, to feed you. Yeah, but what's he going to feed us with? Difficult question. So the disciples are on the front end of ministry by faith in a very real sense on this occasion. What is going to happen next? In verses 41 and 42, we see the miracle unfold with five different actions. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Five things happened. Taking the food, Jesus, first of all, looks up to heaven. A sign of prayer, a sign of faith, a sign of connection to his heavenly father, a sign of listening to what his heavenly father is doing. Here is the spiritual dynamic represented. Then Jesus gives thanks for what is already there. And then he breaks the bread, gives it to the disciples, and then they distribute it to the people. Now the question arises in my mind, maybe in your mind also, well, when exactly does the miracle happen? Does it happen when he looks up to heaven? Does it happen when he gives thanks? Does it happen when he breaks the bread? Does it happen when he gives it to the disciples? Does it happen in the distribution? My suspicion is this miracle happens at the very last stage in the process of distribution. So as the act of faith takes place on behalf of the disciples to participate with Jesus in this extraordinarily unlikely venture, then a miracle of multiplication of astonishing proportions takes place before their very eyes. And John records, and also Mark, in Mark 6.43, and in John uh, 6 verse 13 in Mark it says and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish that's an enormous amount of leftovers after everyone had eaten as much as they wanted to eat an extraordinary amount of multiplication took place in this event and so spectacular was this miracle that in John's account, which we'll turn to in a subsequent episode, 
but I'll just give you an introduction to this. John 6 verses 14 to 15 says very explicitly, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. We'll have opportunity to look at this in a bit more detail in a subsequent episode, but we need to pause on this and just think about it now. So having witnessed this event, many people reach such a fever pitch of excitement that they identify Jesus with the Old Testament figure known as the prophet, which is a representation of the prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when he said that a prophet, a greater prophet than him would come after him and the people must listen to that prophet. And from that prophecy came a tradition in Judaism that a great final prophet would come and many people link that with the figure of the Messiah. And that's probably what the people had in mind in this occasion, the prophet who is to come into the world. And then, astonishingly, it says they intended to come and make him king by force. Now, how can they do that? This is them wanting to overthrow the political system in the country and use Jesus as their new political leader. Now, this is a very challenging situation for Jesus to be in because the king in his district, King Herod Antipas, had just exerted his authority and power by killing John the Baptist. And it looks like here the people are taking the side of Jesus against King Herod Antipas and wanting to say, actually, we'll have you as our king. We'll get rid of King Herod Antipas, who just works for the Romans, the ultimate rulers. And let's have you in his place. And perhaps even they also had a wider intention, which is to take Jesus in triumph to Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman governor uh, as well and take the capital city and, uh, and really take the whole country, not just the northern district of Galilee. We don't exactly know the details of what they had in mind, but the expression to make him king by force is dramatic. They wanted to turn Jesus into a political leader at this point. They were so impressed with this miracle and all the things that had preceded it, the other miracles that we've been recounting, the astonishing ministry of his um, apostles, healing all over the place, and this sense of proclaiming the kingdom is here, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is here. This had really gripped the imagination of people. And when they saw Jesus on the mountainside, able not just to heal the sick, but actually to create material resources, to create food, they thought, maybe this is the moment. Here's a huge crowd. Here's a dramatic event. Why don't we start the revolution for him? So that's the outcome. It's much more clearly expressed in John's gospel than the others. And that's the beauty of us working with linking together the accounts because we see different facets of the story as we see them in harmony together. 
And the reason John emphasizes this is because of the subsequent events that took place in Capernaum, where a great crowd followed uh, Jesus back to Capernaum and carried on the discussion with him about his messianic status. But we'll come to that in a subsequent episode. Now, for those of you who may have been brought up in the Christian tradition, uh, this is a familiar story. It's one that is taught to children in Sunday school. It's one that's regularly spoken of uh, in Christian preaching. It's a, it's a magnificent story. And so now what I want to do is to take a step back from the actual narrative and spend a little bit of time just on re reflecting on the significance of this particular event. The first thing that occurs to me is that this is a miracle of compassion. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, which we've already mentioned, says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed the sick. Now that compassion also caused him to want to feed people who were getting hungry and tired and were a long way from home. They weren't even in a village or a town. They were out on the mountainside in Galilee. This is a miracle of compassion. And it's a miracle that opens up another dimension of God's grace to us from the miracles of healing, which are prominent in the Gospels, and the miracles of deliverance from uh, dark spirits, which are also prominent in the Gospels. Those speak of some important themes of God's grace and his salvation. But we have another theme here, which is that our God of compassion is also a God of provision, a God who can provide material needs to his people and to needy people in the world. This miracle and also the similar one, which we call the feeding of the 4,000, which we'll study shortly in a subsequent episode, these speak very clearly of Jesus's ability and desire and uh, to provide for the, those who have material needs. And it's not a big step from this thought to realize that this is something to do with the fact that this gospel is a gospel good news to the poor, to the materially deprived. This is part of the coming kingdom. And so this miracle anticipates the way that God provides for his people miraculously in the book of Acts. If we take, for example, the Jerusalem church in the first few chapters of the book of Acts, we see just remarkable material provision as people share and give and redistribute. Um, we find provision for people in need, provision for poor widows, provision for people without jobs and without income comes through the church. And Underlying that narrative is probably some elements of miraculous multiplication. And Paul, in teaching in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, when he teaches about giving, does talk about God's ability as we give to give back to us and to multiply. So it's a very important biblical theme. 
And it's very clearly exemplified here by the gift of the five loaves and the two fishes. As they're given, they multiply. As the small gift is given, so it multiplies. This is a miracle of compassion. It's also a prophetic miracle because the question of bread becomes very significant. The actual bread is discussed by Jesus in a metaphorical sense in his subsequent discussion back in the synagogue in Capernaum with some of the crowd who were there on the mountainside by Bethsaida. John describes this in John chapter 6 and we're going to come to that in a subsequent episode where Jesus explicitly says that he is the bread of life. John 6 verses 25 to 59. The other thing that occurs to me very clearly in this passage is that this is an education in faith for the disciples. Now, they've just been out on their ministry in pairs. They've seen God work miraculously and they've reported back to Jesus some of the things he's done. But here now, they have to engage in a fairly startling miracle. They have to participate in a process. And it all starts with that question, you give them something to eat. So I want to just describe this for a moment, describe some of the implications of this. First of all, the implication is use what you have and God will multiply it. That's a very foundational principle of the Christian life. If we want to see God's kingdom grow, we need to invest what we have in that kingdom and see how God multiplies the impact of it. It's an unpredictable process, but God is a God of multiplication. And that is one of the great themes that we see here. So they took their five loaves, they took their two fish. And the temptation, of course, is to eat it because everyone's hungry, including the disciples. But no, they give it and God multiplies it. This is a test of faith for the disciples because they're involved in very precise obedience. They have to obey every step. They have to get the food. They have to present it to Jesus. They have to organize the crowds. That took quite some time to do, get them to sit down in groups of fifties and hundreds. That was really quite a demanding thing to do with such a huge number of people. And then they have to participate in the distribution and they have to believe that the baskets they've got are not going to be emptied as people put their hands in and take a fish here and some bread there. Human faith and divine power are working together in this miracle in a wonderful way. Now, this is a lesson for us. I'm inspired by this story and have used this story even in my own life. And I'm encouraging you to do the same, to think about the question, what should I be investing in God's kingdom? And whose responsibility is it to multiply or make effective the things that we do for God? Well, our responsibility is to give what we have. His responsibility is to multiply it and to make it fruitful. And we need to keep those two things in mind. There's a huge risk when you give money, when you give time, when you change careers, where you serve in the church, uh, where some people uh, get involved in full-time church leadership or missionary work or evangelistic work, 
there's a risk. There's a risk for us of investment in the kingdom. But when we think about the risk, we should think much more strongly about the investment and the opportunity. We should go back to stories like this, which show us that as we invest what God calls us to invest in the kingdom, so there will be multiplication of blessing, whatever uh, that type of blessing is, depending on what you're investing. It might be finance, it might be time, it might be prayer, it might be direct evangelism, it might be supporting ministries in the church, it might be witnessing to your family. It might be particularly seeking to provide for those in need and sharing what you have with the poor in one sense or another, formally or informally, through a project, through your personal work or personal relationships. There's all sorts of different ways that we might do it. Now, my experience has been consistently that as we invest the little we have faithfully and as we obey the things that God calls us to do, so he is able, well able, to multiply and make effective the things that we invest. My final reflection is just another comment on the fact that Jesus was uh, so popular at this time. This crowd represents that popularity. It's been a considerable inconvenience for the crowd to travel all the way over to the district of Bethsaida, 10 to 15 kilometers of walking, just to get there, 10 to 15 kilometers to get back again. They've made a real effort. He's at the height of his popularity. But this is soon to change. The winds of opposition are building up and the cross current between his popularity and resistance to him is gradually going to be growing uh, in the coming days. Popularity in itself can be a risky moment, but Jesus is aware of that. And that's why what he does next is very important. He continues in his original intention, which is to find some solitude for prayer. So having dismissed the crowd, he goes to pray. And that leads us on into the next dramatic incident that takes place, which forms the subject of our next episode. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.